Well, good morning again. Good to see y'all. Everybody's awake. Uh, as we turn in John 3 uh, to verse 16, we're continuing in our series in John. Just a little editorial note here right at the beginning is uh, the, the ESV translation that's printed in the bulletin that we usually use has this paragraph in quotation marks. There's a funny thing about this because Jesus has been in the middle of a conversation with this guy, Nicodemus, and clearly up through verse 15 that we read to you last week is that conversation, but 16 to 21, it's really unclear uh, in the Greek whether he was, is continuing to talk, and this is more of Jesus' words, or if this is an editorial comment by John, the disciple who wrote the gospel. Uh, quotation marks some of you will know are, are kind of a relatively recent uh, invention. And so, you know, they're not in ancient Greek. They're not in uh, a lot of even older English. And so this is, a kind of, this is the kind of thing that is a decision made by the translators w- which way they think it is. And uh, ultimately, it doesn't really matter because whether it's Jesus saying it about what he's accomplishing or whether it's John making a comment about what Jesus has accomplished, it still gets us to the same place. But uh, it's, it, it is something you may notice in a translation difference is some consider it part of Jesus' conversation and others consider this an editorial comment. So I just want to note that before we read it. Again, I don't think it factors much into interpretation, but there it is if you're looking at different versions. But... Uh, Here we go, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, this is a well-known verses, at least the beginning part of it anyway. Uh, so let's pray that God would teach us through it. Father, we thank you that your word is given to us, that we would know you, that we would know the depths of your love, that we would know the lengths of your grace, that we would know the heights of the fellowship that we have by your Spirit. So we pray that you would show us this morning what's on offer in the good news of Jesus, that you would work in us to build upon it so that everything would be ours only in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, this passage begins, of course, with John 3.16, which is easily the most famous verse of the Bible. Uh, especially in the modern world, and, and for good reason, right? It's a, it's a pretty good summary of the gospel, right? It's, 
It's kind of all there. Of course, there's a lot more you can say and there's a lot more you can unpack. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? This is, these are well-known verses. They summarize it so well. And of course, because they're so clear and so effective, Christians have done all kinds of weird things with it, right? So like all these sporting events, right? There's always somebody with a poster of John 3.16 there or athletes with it like written on their eye black, you know, uh, it's on billboards on the side of the highway. The t-shirts, just not during the sermon, but like this afternoon, do yourself a favor and Google John 316 t-shirts. And while some of them are, you know, nice enough and fine, whatever, some of them are weird. There's one that's like a jersey that has John 3 as if it's the name of a person. No jersey ever has both names. I don't know why that does that. And then 16 on it, you know. What is this for? Who is this for? Who is this shirt for? I don't know. What is this supposed to be accomplishing? I have no idea. So we do all kinds of weird things with it. Uh, And it suffers from a kind of familiarity in some ways, though, right? Because we know this verse so well, if you've been around the church especially, that we kind of miss what it's about, And so again, whether it's Jesus saying this or whether this is John making a comment on the discussion that's just wrapped up with Nicodemus, the question is, why did God bring eternal life through Jesus? We'll unpack those terms a little bit, but building on the conversation with Nicodemus, this is why did God do this in the first place? Why did God bring this kind of spiritual life? And we're told that he gave us this kind of spiritual life in love and for light. In love and for light. John uses light and life and love in all kinds of interconnected ways, which are really fascinating. They don't all begin with the same letter in Greek, but it's a happy circumstance of English, I guess. But the... uh, but they're all interconnected. So, he give, so Jesus has told Nicodemus that he came to bring eternal life. And what we learned this morning is that it is, we, we are given life in love and for light. So we're given life in love. Let's go back to that conversation with Nicodemus as we start here. Nicodemus was a, was a influential kind of leader in the community. And he came to Jesus at night because he wanted, clearly wanted to learn more, but he was embarrassed to go talk to Jesus where everyone could see him. Or maybe he didn't feel the freedom to ask the questions he wanted to ask with all those prying eyes. I don't know. But he came to Jesus at night and Jesus starts to tell him that what you have to do is be born again. Well, of course, Nicodemus is confused about what that means, and Jesus starts talking about the life that he is bringing, the life that comes by the Spirit, and the life that is given because of what he accomplishes on the cross, eternal life. And that's really where this verse picks up. So Jesus has ended by saying that whoever believes in him, the one who is lifted up, which is Jesus, of course, 
may have eternal life. And so verse, immediately on the heels of that, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That he gave his only son. Let's not miss that piece of the puzzle here is that it is salvation is only through Jesus giving his life. The giving of his life is the centerpiece. And may, again, maybe that's obvious. Maybe that's something we know at some level. But that is, in fact, the thing that is the centerpiece of Christianity, right? There's a reason why the cross is the main symbol of Christianity. It is the thing that is really the defining point, I think, between a church that is really preaching the gospel and a church that is wandering away from it is, do we preach the cross? And it is Jesus' life in our place in particular that's so important because all the ways in which our salvation is discussed in the Bible center around that substitutionary act, right? The Jesus giving his life for us. So whether that is the kind of legal language, right, about what are we going to do with our guilt? And what are we going to do about the judgment it deserves, right? The good news is that Jesus took our place. Whether it is talking about what atonement and coming, the, the kind of ritual language of what does it mean to be worthy to come into God's presence, right? That's the sacrificial description of Jesus' life sacrificed in our place. Whether it is the language of military achievement and Christ's victory over Satan and sin and death. Right? It is because he, he died in our place that he won the victory. Even when we're told that Jesus is the example that we should follow, the thing that is always at the center of that is the cross itself, his giving of himself in our place. That's how Jesus describes it, right? Take up your cross. And follow me. And it's all motivated by God's love. For God so loved the world. In verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't the reason Jesus came. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Right? It is his love that animates all of that. And it's weird how much people get hung up on this idea, and if you, if you read through the commentators, about what does it mean that Jesus loved the world, or God loved the world? It's not actually, I, you know, there's a lot of different answers to this, given by a lot of commentators. I don't think it's actually all that great a mystery. This is all of God's creation. I mean, there are ways in which the world in its fallen state is described as a problem, for sure, but... All of God's world is what he is doing. What he, he, has, he has made it and he is going to restore it. Now, humanity, and some people think, I guess, that this verse really is supposed to say, for God so loved people, or for God so loved his elect people. And 
I mean, I'm not saying either, either of those statements might be true in a, in a certain way, but the whole point here seems to be that God's agenda is cosmic. Now, humanity plays a key role, of course, in all of this, right? Humanity plays a key role at creation. But we're also the ones who mucked it up. <laughs> And of course, humanity plays a key role in redemption. But this is why Jesus became fully human, to do what we have failed to do, to do what we would not or could not do. In other words, Jesus becomes the human we were always supposed to be. So God loves his creation, and yes, humanity is the linchpin of that change of the new creation that he wants to bring in, but notice that he enters in as human to accomplish it. See, God loves what he made, and he does love you. I mean, that is clearly implied in this, but don't mix it up. It is because God loves that he acts. And so often we get this mixed up. And I'm talking about Christians primarily. (laughs) We get this order mixed up. Uh, Sometimes it is communicated in, I mean, I've I've heard hymns and songs that I think communicate this. You sometimes hear people say this. It is something to the effect of, it is because Jesus died that God loved us. And that is a very subtle turning around of this verse. Do you notice that? This verse says God loved us and so he gave his son. And often we end up talking as if because he gave his son, he now loves us. And while that may seem subtle, it's a colossal difference. One of my favorite 16th century theologians, a guy named John Owen, puts it this way. He says, Christians walk oftentimes with exceedingly troubled hearts concerning the thoughts of the Father toward them. They are well persuaded that the Lord Christ Christ and his goodwill, the difficulty lies in what is their acceptance with the Father, what is his heart toward them. Now this ought to be so far away that his love ought to look to be looked on as the fountain from whence all other sweetnesses flow. Get what he's saying, right? We often think, well, we know Jesus loves us, <laughs> but we feel as if the Father's arm's been twisted. <laughs> I mean, this introduces all kinds of problems in terms of how we might view what is actually happening within, like, the Trinity. <laughs> um, all kinds of problematic issues. But most of all, at some practical level, it means that we think that God doesn't really love us. That, well, Jesus is just going to hold God to it because he gave up his life, so God, okay, reluctantly is going to continue to accept us. And it's garbage. It's not just a mistake. It is spiritually toxic. 
because many of us struggle with this idea that God doesn't really love me. And it is proof that we have reversed the order. We've gotten things backwards, that we think that it is Jesus demanding that the Father respect what He has done, not that the Father and the Son and the Spirit loved us and sent the Son for us to give His life. In other words, it's not, we don't really think it's real love because the good news is that God in His love sacrificed not that something was given and now he feels obligated. And it's important we understand this because it is in Jesus' death that we understand what love really means. Because love comes into its own, love becomes real and practical when sacrifice is required. That is when it gets real. You might say that, you know, love up until that point, whatever we imagine it to be, hasn't really come into being until you have to give something, right? It's that moment with your friends when they have to choose whether to give something up to help you out that it becomes clear. Now, nobody's perfect. I'm not saying your friends are terrible if you feel like they didn't maybe give everything they could have. But if they're never giving, then do they love you? It's, it's partly why I think most of us never ask the question about our parents, right? Because at one level, the sacrifice they make is just kind of obvious. Right? We think, that, of course, they love us. Uh, it's the question you ought to be asking if you think you're falling in love, (laughs) right? It's, what am I willing to give for this person? It's what it takes to continue to foster a healthy marriage, right, in the long run. It's what it takes to rebuild a marriage when it's damaged. Is somebody has to start sacrificing, Sacrifice is the expression of love. And in fact, again, that guy John Owen says that in the pouring out of his love, there is not one drop that falls besides in the Lord Jesus. In other words, every bit of God's love is expressed through his Son. Every bit of God's love is what is made clear in and only in Jesus. This is how we know what love is. And indeed, it is the story of Jesus, death and resurrection, even more than our kind of theologizing around it, however biblical, that is the most powerful thing. It is what Jesus has done. It is why, you know, the most elaborate apologetics don't often convince people. What convinces people is seeing that Jesus laid down his life for them. That is the whole point. That is the whole thing to put your faith in. 
Any version of love that is not sacrificial is a daydream, and any idea that we have of God's love that is not expressed in and through Jesus is just wish fulfillment. Now, it's sometimes difficult to feel the love of God. It is sometimes difficult to have a practical knowledge of this. I mean, I, you know, many of you, most of you are Christians and probably have had this experience. Now, some of you have had a kind of sudden conversion, right? And you may remember a time clearly without the love of God in Christ at work in you. But a lot of us have grown up in the church and there's a bit of a vague notion out there. We know it in principle, but we don't always feel it. Maybe some of you have never experienced it, I don't know. The point of this, though, is that to understand, to uncover, to unearth, to experience the, the love of God, you have to go to the cross. It's at the cross that it's made clear. If you're spiritually dry, the place to go is to the cross. The place to look for God's love is at the cross. And you can see why then there is no salvation outside of Jesus, why the Bible is insistent on this. It is not, and let's be clear about this, it is not because to become a Christian it will make you a good person. I think at least, you know, certainly outwardly in terms of maybe even the social uh, economy, right, there's plenty of good people out there. And I dare say sometimes they look a whole lot better than a lot of the people in the church. The point isn't to come and so you can be a good person, and that's what saves you. The point of all of this is that we are not good people. Even those of us that look good outwardly, but that Jesus is good. It's never what we bring to the table. You see, in that sense, Christianity is exclusive in that what we're saying is you must come to Jesus to be saved, that we don't get to invent any other way to God, but it's also the most inclusive because it's saying you also can't bring anything to the table. No one brings anything to the table except for God. So there is no other way but through the love of God, finding its full saving effect in Jesus. So we are given this eternal life and it comes to us in love, but it also is given to us for light so that we can see our way. And you get verses 18 through 20 build off this idea of the light and the darkness. So uh, if we don't believe, we are condemned, but we've been condemned already. Notice that condemnation is sort of the default position (laughs) because that's none of us bring anything to the table, right? Condemnation is what we deserve, Verses 19 and 20 make it clear then that we love the darkness. We don't like to get exposed. I mean, 
have you ever flipped on the light and seen a palmetto bug go scurrying? I mean, that's, <laughs> I see a couple of people shivering. Yes, right? But that's what we're, that, that is the perfect description of what we're like, right? It's like the lights get flipped on. Jesus shows up and it's like having those lights flipped on, right? And like a bug, we go scurrying because we love the darkness. Uh, when I worked for RUF, uh, Reform University Fellowship, we had twice a year the, the long-term staff would get together and about halfway through my time, we moved to where we were meeting to Denver. And we would stay at this hotel just north of, of the city and half the rooms faced east, half the rooms faced west. Now, most people wanted the rooms facing west because you could look out over the mountains. Now, if you've ever been to Denver, you know that if you look out east, it's just plains. It is flat as can be, right? So it was such a stark kind of contrast in what you would see out your window. The couple of times that I ended up in an east-facing room, I discovered something else unpleasant, that you had to have every crack of the shades, you know, tightly together, because when the sun came over the plains, it was going straight in your room, you know, just full blast, right? It was unpleasant to wake up to, to feed you. And there, there was one morning I woke up and there was a crack and it felt like it was like right in my face, you know, like the sun was just right there burning me, you know, and you, you couldn't throw open the shades because all it took was a little crack and your room was like fully illuminated, you know. Uh, if you threw that open, it was just, you know, you were like a vampire scrambling to get, you know, <laughs> to get away from the light. You couldn't even look at the window. It, it was deeply unpleasant. But that's something like what we are spiritually, isn't it? And it is to say that when Jesus shows up in his goodness, even in his grace, because it shows us who we are, it's scary. We don't like it. It exposes our own lack of goodness. It's not a mistake, right, then, that Jesus' main main problem that he has with people is with the people who seem to be doing the best. Isn't that ironic, right? And Jesus, Jesus is no slouch in his moral teaching. In fact, you know, if you look at something like the Sermon on the Mount, it proves that he's even tougher on the law than the most radical rabbinical school of the time, or really any time. <laughs> Jesus is so tough on the law, and yet, and yet, and yet, those who struggled to keep it were more attracted to Jesus than those who were doing seemingly a lot better. Because the light was exposing the darkness that they were trying to ignore. The works of darkness in their life that they didn't want to see. And so when Jesus shows up, it illuminates them, but it illuminates it because he is the light. Because Jesus' own life exposes what it looks like to be good. And, and this is why over and over and over again, the New Testament goes back to Jesus as our example. And we think about the fruit of the Spirit. And that is not just an invented list by Paul. That is the character of Jesus 
teased out. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I think I missed something. In there. <laughs> there we go. Faithfulness. <laughs> Thank you. Over and over again, this is what we see, right? Is it's the character of Jesus that is brought out. That the New Testament is not just making up an idea of what they think kind of a good person is. It's the character of Jesus that's grown in us. The whole point isn't supposed to be like, well, what would Jesus do as if you're supposed to wander around living like you're some sort of first century Middle Eastern man, a peasant, a carpenter? That's not the point. And the point, of course, isn't so that you could do the kind of like incommunicable divine things that he could do, like read people's minds and walk on water. The point is that his character is supposed to be grown in us. And that is what the Spirit does. Right? After, after bringing us in faith to Jesus, it grows that kind of character. And so it's kind of depressing when you realize that when we bring up issues of character, sometimes in the church they get dismissed. I mean, let's just, just think about some basics, right? Love your enemies. How are we doing on that in the church in America? <laughs> mm, not so well. We tend to avoid that category because we don't like our enemies. <laughs> and when we feel under attack, we like to attack back. I dare say this is why Christianity in America has become so politicized. It's because we're enamored with wielding power against those that we distrust. How about love your neighbor? <laughs> That's Jesus himself quoting other scripture. You should love your neighbor as yourself. So that's, you know, Scripture doubled for you. How are we doing on that? Do we love our neighbors? I mean, one of the things I think the pandemic has exposed is how little we like to think about our neighbors. There was a, somebody highlighted for me a, uh, uh, an editorial in Wired Magazine. I don't really read Wired Magazine very much, but uh, it's a little too techie for my taste. But uh, there was a question that says, do, do, good door, do good doorbell cams make good neighbors? This person writes in that, like, you know, they're, they're a bunch of people in their neighborhood have them and all this, and we have one. I'm sorry to say. Not sorry. Sorry. I don't know. But this is what the person responds. They're asking, should they get a doorbell cam? And they said, in the U.S., this tenant, love your neighbor, has long lived in tension with the virtues of individualism and the sanctity of private property and has often prompted the tepid good fences wisdom that Benjamin Franklin famously prescribed. It has become something of a no-brainer in popular culture that self-preservation is the foundation of any viable altruism. In other words... We tend to think, i got to watch out for mine first. And then I'll get around to loving my neighbor. That's what we tend to think. 
And I'm not saying there isn't, there isn't a place for wisdom and acting wisely and not letting people take advantage of you. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for self-care in the midst of all of these things. But if what we constantly are doing is avoiding actually sacrificially loving our neighbor, then we are definitely dodging the light of Jesus. His goodness, what it exposes in us, which is all that is to say nothing of, of course, what is the most important, which is to love the Lord above all things. And how convenient it is that we have a hard time listening to his word. We lay it aside so easily. We turn aside from worship so easily. We are slow in prayer. And that is the very thing. I mean, our, our old catechism says it, right? That the whole, the whole goal of our lives is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, to worship him forever. And we often struggle with that. Now, my point isn't that you need to shape up. The point is that it is the light of Jesus that exposes the darkness at work in us. And that if we want to live in the light, we need to turn away from darkness. Which means not turn away simply from doing bad good bad things to doing good things, but turn away from our own self-sufficiency. Turn away from our own sense that I can do this myself. Because as verse 21 so helpfully reminds us, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out, what? In God. These are works that are carried out because of God. And this is, again, another theme throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 2 tells us that our good works have been prepared in advance for us. Philippians 2 tells us to work out our faith with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in us to will and to act. So that even the good things that we do are the work of the Spirit in us, working out the very character of Jesus, whose life is now at work in us. We hate the light, naturally. And many of us try to be good people so that we can pretend that we're not living in darkness. But the life that Jesus gives gives light into even the darkest corners of our heart. And it teaches us that to think we can do these things on our own, of our own, is foolishness and to be stuck in darkness. But what is on offer? The change of the, that Jesus offers to make for us is that he has given his life in our place not merely to be judged, though that is an important piece of it, but also so that we can live life in the light, 
not by our own power, but by the, his power at work in us by the Spirit. And the telltale sign that you are still trying to do good works in darkness is not what you're trying to do, but why you're trying to do it. If you want to change, why do you want to change? Is it so that you can prove something about yourself and you're in darkness? But if you want to change so that the life of Jesus is praised, is celebrated, is seen in your life, then you are walking in the light. So let's walk in the light, even as we come to this table and be reminded of everything that Jesus has done for us once and for all that even now is at work in us by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we come to your table with confidence, not in what we've accomplished, but in what Jesus has done, and that even the good works that you call us to are not our good works, but the work of the Spirit in us. So as we come to this meal, we pray that you would feed us on the work of Jesus, that we would be reminded that we are not our own, but we're bought with a price, that we would be reminded that we don't come with our own good works, but we come with the works that you have prepared, that the Spirit animates, that brings forward Jesus himself at work in our lives. So as we come to this meal, Lord, teach us once again that Jesus is our life. I ask all this in his name. Amen.